Will you please turn in your Bibles to Romans 8, Romans chapter 8. And these guys have some Bibles. They're going to come to the front, make their way to the back with those Bibles in hand to distribute to you. If you need one, get their attention. They'll give you one of those Bibles that's marked at the passage we'll be looking at in Romans chapter 8. The church scene can be very confusing. If you take a short drive anywhere in America, you're going to pass by multiple churches. They have a bewildering array of labels on them. Catholic, Episcopal, Presbyterian, Lutheran, Methodist, Baptist, Bible, Church of Christ, Church of God, Church of God of Prophecy, Church of God Anderson, Indiana headquarters, Church of God Cleveland, Tennessee headquarters, Assembly of God, New Jerusalem Apostolic Mount Moriah Church of Our Lord Jesus Christ, the River Church, the Journey Church, and on it goes. So unless you're a church historian and you know something of the origin of all of these, you kind of just throw up your hands and say, I have no idea. I actually have a series that I've taught here three times over the 14 years of our church's existence that's on this very issue of where did the denominations come from and what is the difference. Now, one way to make your way through the church terrain is to recognize that at least some of the differences that have given rise to different denominations are about non-essential matters. For instance, our Presbyterian friends, and I attended both a Baptist and a Presbyterian seminary, and so when I say friends, I mean that. But our Presbyterian friends are so-called due to their form of church government. Presbyterian is a form of church government. Many of you know that I was raised Pentecostal. Pentecostals believe that what happened on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 still happens today. That people are given the ability to speak in languages that they never learned. That's called speaking in tongues. Now what happens with our Pentecostal friends today is not usually what happened on Pentecost. Since speaking in tongues that's done today is usually speech that neither the speaker nor the hearers understand. But that is their distinctive. What happened in the first century still happens today, with a couple of exceptions. No one's writing books of the Bible today, and no one's raising people from the dead today, but those differences are often overlooked fairly fairly quickly. Now, I've implied in what I just said that things like church government and speaking in tongues are non-essential issues. It doesn't mean they're unimportant. It just means that they're not the essence of Christianity. The core of Christianity is something other than how a church is governed and whether or not one practices speaking in tongues. So what is the essence of Christianity? If you had to distill it to a single word, what would it be? I would suggest to you that the essence of Christianity is what the Bible calls the gospel. It's the message of the person and work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And even though there are many, many, and frankly, far too many individual churches, all people who believe and live the gospel, whatever their denomination, are part of what the Bible calls the body of Christ, with whom we'll share heaven someday. Now, if I'm correct that the gospel is the core of Christianity, then doesn't it follow that we need to ensure that we understand and live out the gospel? And it's particularly important for us, our church, to remind ourselves of this at this time for a couple of reasons. 
Last month, we celebrated our church's 14th anniversary. We have one year remaining in our original 15-year plan. We're beginning work on a new 10-year plan. The older I get, the shorter the plans become. When we get to a six-month plan, please have someone ready to take my place. And as we plan for the future, we, we want the gospel and the advance of the gospel to be central to our plans. And another reason that it's important for us to remind ourselves of the centrality of the gospel is because it's so very easy, friends, for us to become distracted. It's easy to get off target if we're not careful. For example, when you, as a church, emphasize helping people with their struggles, as our church does and will continue to do, And when you start ministries devoted to that very thing, like Stephen Ministry, that we're going to launch next May. This is a very good thing, but if you're not careful, you can come to believe that the meeting of needs becomes an end in itself. So if you have a ministry to help, for example, unwed mothers, as we hope to do, we've not ended our task when when we've simply helped them financially or emotionally. We indeed want to do that. We want to see them see themselves, to see their baby and all of life through the prism of the gospel. And that requires that we thoroughly understand and live out the gospel so that it remains our central message and it permeates everything that we do. I read an article some years ago called The Hyphenated Church, When Preference Becomes Precept. The author says the hyphenated church is a fellowship which whether officially or unofficially, ascertains orthodoxy or at the very least, quote, real maturity based upon some preference which has been elevated to be an essential precept. Whether spoken or not, the members of hyphenated congregations often determine fellowship and maturity and sanctification and so on by adherence to a certain predetermined yet unjustifiable set of preferences. The preference has become a de facto filtering test and litmus within the congregation. He says, I've used the term hyphenated to describe this phenomenon in the sense that the fellowship, as it's functionally viewed and operated by the insiders, reflects this filtering device as if it were actually appended to the congregation's name. Trinity Baptist Church, hyphen, KJV only. Grace Reformed Church hyphen, a Republican church. Didn't hear any amens there. (laughs) New Life Community Church, hyphen, a homeschooling fellowship. And on and on it can go. Dr. Roland McCune, past president of Detroit Baptist Seminary that I attended, used to say that over time churches often become known for something, sometimes a quirk of the pastor. He's an end times expert or some other hobby horse about which he often preaches and teaches. So what will Community Bible Church be known for in Trenton and surrounding communities? We want it, do we not, to be about the essential truths of Christianity that can be summed up in a word, the gospel. You may be thinking, well, this is going to be a short message because I can give you the gospel in 15 seconds. Gospel means good news. The bad news is we're sinners. And good news is Jesus Christ died to rescue sinners. Ask him to save you. He will. You'll have a relationship with God. And you'll be in heaven forever when you die. That was actually closer to 10 seconds. 
Now, that's a fine summary of the gospel as far as it goes. In fact, many of you know that I have a shorthand summary that I often use at the end of our morning messages that we display on the screen. And it says, well, what do I do now? And it's summarized in four words. Realize and recognize and repent and receive. But we need to understand that these are indeed summaries. The Bible has more to say about the gospel. And if it's going to affect our thinking and our living, then we need to know the detail behind the summary. So over the next few weeks, we're taking a break from our series in the book of Genesis for reasons that I just stated and because, frankly, Genesis is so often focused on the bad news that I think it's good for us to take some time to review the good news of the gospel. And so I want to explore what the Bible says about the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel. And so today we begin a mini-series called The Treasure of the Gospel. And we're going to see that the gospel, like a diamond, has many facets that come into focus as you turn in and examine it as you would a precious jewel. Let's ask God to help us then as we begin. Father, thank you for allowing us to gather. Thank you for giving us the freedom to gather without fear. And thank you, Lord, for giving us the desire to gather most of all. A desire that we would not have were it not for you. So, Lord, we believe that we are here by your divine appointment. So we thank you and we ask you to help us to make the most of our time together, learning of you, learning of ourselves, and learning how to fulfill that which you have for us. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus, who is central to the gospel. Amen. Now, if you want to get a detailed explanation of the gospel from the Bible, where would you go? Not just a summary. 1 Corinthians 15 has a few verses that have a summary of the essential elements of the gospel. But if you want a detailed explanation, where would you go? Well, there are lots of places that mention the gospel. It's used, the word is, just under 100 times, 96 to be exact, in your New Testament. Jews most often in the books of Romans and Galatians. In Galatians, it's a refutation of a false gospel that was being propagated, while Romans is an explanation of the gospel. And I'm asking you to turn to Romans 8, and we're going to focus in a bit on verses 29 and 30. But I want you to see how those verses connect to the overall explanation of the gospel that's in the book of Romans. Notice verse 29 of Romans 8. It begins with the word for, or because. Well, because then of what? Well, the because of what is in the verse that precedes, verse 28, which starts with and. And we know that in all things. So and connects verse 28 to what goes before it. And this connecting takes place throughout the book of Romans. So I'd like you to see where it starts and where it ends. We're going to come back to Romans 8, 29 and 30, but if you can hold your finger there and turn back to the first chapter, <clears throat> the very first chapter. Hey, if uh, one of the ushers finds a bottle of water somewhere, even if someone juiced it, I'll take it. Thank you. So this connecting goes all the way back to the beginning. Chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, 
called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures. And then in these introductory remarks in the first chapter, Paul, who wrote it to the church in Rome, says down in verse 15, I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. Now, why is Paul eager to do that? The next verse tells you, verse 16, for or because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because it, the gospel, is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And how is it the power of God? Thank you, sir. How is it the power of God for everyone who believes? Well, I'm glad you asked that. Verse 17 answers that question. For, because, in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So why do I need a righteousness of God, a righteousness that is from God? What's wrong with my own righteousness? Well, I'm glad you asked that as well. And verse 18, the next verse, tells you. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now, what's the connection between verse 18 and verse 17 that says the gospel is the power of God, and here's why it's the power of God, because it gives us a righteousness that is of God, that is from God. How are those connected? Well, actually, in Greek, in which your New Testament was originally written, There is, at the very beginning of verse 18, the word for or because. So why do we need this gospel that is a righteousness from God or of God? Because for the wrath of God is being revealed. Verse 18 begins to answer the question why we need the gospel, a righteousness from God. And so it literally says because the wrath of God is being revealed. And then from chapter 1 and verse 18. Through chapter 3 and verse 8, there's an extended argument showing that all people, Jews and Gentiles, are sinners and they need this righteousness from God because all people don't have any of their own. Verse 9 of Romans chapter 3. If you just turn a few pages. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And that's describing me and that's describing you and everybody else. Chapter 3, verses 9 through 20 give a summary of the totality of our sin, that it affects every part of us. And if it ends there, then the whole thing ends with the bad news. But remember, this is all about the gospel back in chapter 1. This is all an explanation of the good news. And so when you come to chapter 3 and verse 21, it says, But now, apart from the law... The righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. 
And it then goes on to explain that this comes through the person and work of Jesus Christ. The bad news is all of that stuff in chapters 1, 2, and the first part of chapter 3, and now in verse 21 of chapter 3. But now, here's the good news. In contrast to all of that, God has made a righteousness available that is from Him. And it is centered in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then as you go forward, chapter 6 through 8. Show how we're to live in light of this, especially the role of the Holy Spirit and those who've received this righteousness that's from God. And chapters 9 through 11 show that the Jews and Israel still have a role in God's plan for the spread of his gospel in his word. And it all ends in chapter 11. If you'll turn there, chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 33. With 11 chapters worth of explanation of the good news. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him. And for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Now, whatever this gospel is, (laughs) summarize there as saying it's centered on God. And if you come up with a version of the good news that's not centered on God, then you've got a different good news than the Bible has. It is from Him and to Him and through Him, as are all things. And this concludes 11 then chapters of explanation. And then the five final chapters are how to apply what's been said in those first 11 chapters. And that's why chapter 12 starts famously. Many of us learned this verse in Sunday school. Therefore, therefore, because of all that stuff, Because of all those 11 chapters and what's been explained, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of the good news that God has made available, as explained in those 11 chapters, I urge you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. All right. That's a flyover of the book of Romans. Now back to chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. The four of verse 29 connects it to verse 28. And the end of verse 28 connects it to the verses before. And chapter 8 speaks of our trials and our difficulties. And it shows that how we handle these trials and difficulties is connected to the gospel. Verse 26 of chapter 8. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And then verse 28 famously, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who are called according to his purpose. So with all of that, I want you to see four things that we know about the gospel as we start this mini-series. Mini and we have those for you in the outline that's inserted in your program. 
So I encourage you to take that out and see, first of all, the gospel begins with God. The gospel begins with God. The gospel begins with the God with whom the Bible begins. In the beginning, God. Everything, including the good news message of the gospel, starts with God. God is the one who takes the initiative. And throughout your Bible, you see this spoken of. God as the one who sovereignly plans all the things that happen in his world, including the details of the gospel. So in the first part of your Bible, the prophet Isaiah, the Lord says, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. The book of Proverbs in the first part of your Bible says the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, but he, the Lord, turns it, the king's heart, wherever he wishes. So you think Obama's in control. And Obama thinks he's in control and Bush thought he was in control. But ultimately, it's God who's in control. All things begin with God, including the gospel, as we're going to see. The book of Proverbs even tells us that he's planned something as insignificant. You know, that's big stuff, what the, king's, what the king does. But God has planned and God has control over even the small stuff. He's planned something as insignificant as the casting of a lot, like the rolling of dice. So Proverbs says this, the lot or the, the, the dice are thrown into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Nothing by chance. The gospel begins with God. Now, how so? It begins, the Bible teaches, with his loving choice, I say in your outline. His loving choice. Romans 8, 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. God foreknew his children. That's what it's saying. The gospel begins with God, and it begins with God's loving choice. He foreknew his children. Now, this verb foreknew is often misunderstood, so bear with me for a moment. In its simplest meaning, it has the idea to know in advance. And when it's applied to the activities of people, though that's rarely the case in the Bible, it simply means to know something ahead of time. But when it's applied to the activities of an all-knowing God... It takes on richer, fuller implications. I mean, think about that. God foreknew. Well, yeah, because God knows everything. So if your understanding of this word is that God got a hot tip on what was going to happen, you got to ask yourself, from whom did he get that hot tip? How long has God known all things? So foreknew for God is something is something different. But many people think that it means that God looked down through the tunnel of time and he saw what was going to happen in the future. <laughs> and I would have liked to have been in the you know in the production room of that movie. As God's looking down through time and he's going, Can you believe it? I, I can't believe all of look at all those people and look at what they're doing. Wow. I should get involved in this. Friends, if that's what foreknowledge meant when applied to God, then you have a God who reacts rather than initiates. 
We have a plan of salvation where not only is God's initiative eliminated, but grace is destroyed. Because salvation is now as a result of my ability to know a good deal when I see it, rather than what the Bible teaches, God initiating to save me out of the depths of my sin. God initiating. Now we're going to see some reasons, other reasons, that cannot be what foreknowledge means as it relates to the Bible. But let me ask you this. Based on what we've just even seen in our brief flyover of the book of Romans. And in particular in chapters 1, 2, and 3. If foreknowledge meant for God that he looked down through time. Then what would God foresee about you and me? As it relates to coming to Jesus. How many of us would come to Jesus if God is a passive observer watching what's going to happen? And you know the answer to that? Romans already answered it in Romans 3, didn't it? Our sinfulness affects every aspect of who are we are. And it says, as we saw, no one seeks God. So here's what how many people God would see coming to Jesus. Zero. None. So God is not just looking down passively over what's going to happen. God initiates. God is active. Harry Ironside was the pastor of Moody Memorial Church in Chicago for many years. He told the story of a member of his church. This man gave a testimony one night and told how God had saved him and what God had done for him in his life. And over and over again, this man extolled God. He gave God the glory for all he had done in saving him. And after the service, someone came up to that man. He said, I appreciated all that you had to say, but you didn't give a balanced picture. You talked all about what God has done. You never said a word about what you've done. God did his part, but... You didn't talk about your part. And the man responded, you're right, I didn't. I should have responded that my part was this. I did the running. God's part was that he did the chasing until he caught me. Some of you have heard me say this over the years. Hear this, friends. The only thing you contribute to your salvation is your sin. That's it. And that's why we say salvation is of grace. If foreknowledge simply means that God looks down through the tunnel of time for him to learn something, all he would see is sinful people running as fast as they can away from him. But the word foreknowledge, when it's applied to the activities of God, means two things depending on the context. Sometimes it means for him to choose or to plan. In 1 Peter chapter 1, it describes those to whom that book is being written in the second verse. And it says this, You have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. And then just a few verses down then in that same chapter, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20, it speaks of God's determination, God the Father's determination to send God the Son to be the Savior. And here's how it literally reads. Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. It's speaking of Christ coming to earth as foreordained or preplanned. God preplanned that Jesus Christ would come to be the solution for man's sin problem. And when it applies foreknowledge to the coming of Jesus, it's not saying God looked down to see if it was okay if he would come. He planned in eternity past that indeed he would come. 
And there's another meaning behind this word foreknowledge. Sometimes it's for God to plan, as in 1 Peter 1. Sometimes it means to set one's affection upon another. And back in the book of Amos, first part of your Bible, Amos chapter 3 and verse 2. The prophet, God says through the prophet to the nation Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. You only have I known ahead of time, foreknown, foreknew. Now think about that. It doesn't mean God's saying, you know, I surveyed the people of the earth, but when I saw you, I didn't survey anybody else. I just stopped. You're the only one I know. Is there anybody else down there with you? I haven't gotten to know anybody else. No, it means this. You only have I set my affection on. You only have I chosen in love. You are, what do we call Israel? My chosen people. In the same way, God has set his affection on sinners like you and me. And he's chosen to save us in spite of our sinfulness. The gospel begins with God. It begins with God's loving choice. And I say in your outline, it begins with God's sovereign choice. God's sovereign choice. His loving choice. He foreknew. Set his affection on. But Then verse 29, or excuse me, verse 30 says of chapter 8, those God foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed, verse 29, excuse me, to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Now, the word predestined means to set boundaries ahead of time and so to ordain. That's a further step from foreknowledge and foreknowing God set his affection on those he would save. God chose. Now, this word describes that for which he's chosen them. They've been predestined to be like Jesus. And one day we will perfectly reflect the character of our Lord Jesus. He's predestined us to be like Jesus. But note, he's predestined us not just for our good, but ultimately for the glory of Christ. Because it says we're predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, that he might be the preeminent one of all of those that God brings into his family. It's Christ's interests that are in view. The gospel is for the glory of God and for Christ's sake. That's why he saved us. It's not just our great need, but it's Christ's glory. The gospel begins with God. And I say secondly in your outline, the gospel, thanks be to God, includes people. The good news is good news to people who need it. It includes people, it includes people who are, I say in the outline, in need. And we've seen, I trust, that you're convinced of our desperate need for the good news of the gospel and a righteousness from outside of ourselves. Why do I need a righteousness outside of myself? Because Romans tells me very clearly none of us has any. So the good news is that God has supplied this righteousness in another person, that person being Jesus. So the gospel includes people who are in need and, verse 30 tells us, it includes people who are called. Verse 30 says, those he predestined, he also called. And here's where the plan of God then breaks into history. 
Those he predestined, he also called. The word call is used a couple of ways in the New Testament, sometimes called the general call. It's the call of God that goes out to everybody. So the phrase, whosoever will may come or come unto me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Left to ourselves, that's a call that goes unheeded, but that's the general call that goes out to everyone. Come. But then there is the effectual call. That is, the message goes out and it has effect on some people. It's the call of God designed to accomplish the ends that He has determined. It's a call that will always have an effect in bringing people to Himself. If you care to jot down John 6 and verse 44, John 6, 44, Jesus said this, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. That's the effectual call. The father has the gospel go out and he draws some to himself. He says, you cannot come unless you're granted to come. God takes the initiative and God accomplishes it through the effectual call. The Word of God tells us that people, all people, because of our sin, are dead in transgressions and sin. So this is total inability to please God, total inability on our own to respond to God. And so Charles Spurgeon, who believed all of this, by the way, all the stuff I'm telling you, because we read the same book, the Bible. And Charles Spurgeon just preached the gospel like crazy. And somebody said, but, you know, if you believe that, if you believe only those who experience the effectual call are going to come, if it's only those God has chosen are going to come, then why do you preach? Why don't you just preach to those people? And he said to the person who asked, he said, show me who they are and I will. (laughs) See, the reason we, we preach the gospel indiscriminately is the truth is I have no earthly idea. And God in His sovereignty has chosen to choose people from every tribe and tongue and nation and station in life to show that He has the power to do as He wills. And so we give the gospel to everybody. And we have absolute confidence, absolute confidence that there will be some who come. How do I know that for sure? Because God is at work. And God says it's going to be effective in those That I call. So let's bring this, friends, down then to a practical view of ourselves and how we view other people. You know, when you look in the Bible, you and I tend tend to look at those that are extolled in the Bible as heroes. And we look at them as extraordinary people. But really the way we should look at them, a la Romans 11, 33 through 36, that it is from him and to him and through him are all things. Instead of looking at them as the heroes, we always should look at God as the hero. And God took people who would otherwise be nothing. And he made something of those people. So what's so great about Noah? We're going to start looking at Noah when we pick up our series in Genesis again in a few weeks. But what's so great about Noah? I mean, Noah obeyed God and all that. But here's what's so great about Noah. Genesis Chapter 6 and verse 8, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. It is the grace of God that's so great about Noah. You know, or what's so, what's so great about Abraham? I was asking this to my Wednesday night class as we're going a survey of the Bible. So what's so great about Abraham, our father Abraham, the father of the faithful? What's so great about him? 
you know, God must have looked down at Abraham to choose him and saw something in Abraham. And I've heard this kind of preaching. You know, God just looked down and he said, ah, there's one I can use. Yikes. Look, the only only reason these people can be used is because God worked in them to make them usable. So where's Abraham when God calls him? Here's where the Bible says he is. He's an Ur of the Chaldees, modern day Iraq, and he's an idol worshiper. That's where he is. Bible says in Joshua 24, from ancient times, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, namely Terah, the father of Abraham, and they served other gods. Well, all right. What's so great about Noah? Nothing. What's so great about Abraham? Nothing. What's so great about then Abraham's uh, grandson, Jacob? His name is changed by God to Israel and his sons are the 12 tribes of Israel. What's so great about Jacob? Jacob, the deceiver, Jacob, his name means the supplanter. What's so great about that guy? And here's what the Bible says. Before the twins, Jacob and Esau were born. Or they had done anything good or bad. Their mother was told Esau will serve Jacob. What's so great about Jacob? Why did Jacob come out on top? Because God was in it. That's all. Nothing about Jacob. Or what about one of those sons, the 12 tribes, the tribe of Judah, through whom would come the future anointed one, the Messiah, Judah? And what about one of those sons of Judah, descendants of Judah named King David? And here's what the Bible says about Judah, Genesis 49. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nation shall be his. That's a prophecy of Jesus, that he'll come through the tribe of Judah, which he did. But before Jesus, there was another king, King David, who came through Judah. That's why Jesus is called the son of David, because he came through the line of Judah and of David. But what was so great about David? Well, David, I mean, come on, he took on giants. He slew Goliath. David was an adulterer and a murderer. And there was nothing great about him even before God called him. The only thing that made him great is that God chose to put him in the line of Judah. God determined that. To the prophet Jeremiah, God said this, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. What's so great about the apostles? Yikes, look at those guys. Right? You read the profile, the biography of those guys. That's the guys you want to choose to run your corporation. And I'm going to go back to heaven and I'm going to leave this enterprise to you. But he does. Why? They're not great. But God is. What's so great about the apostle Paul? Here's what he says about himself. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. What's great about Paul? The grace of God. If it weren't for the grace of God, he would have remained a persecutor and a violent man and a blasphemer. That's why Jesus said to those apostles, you did not choose me, I chose you. Why does God do this? Why does God set it up this way? 
Because God is concerned first and foremost that he receive the credit and the glory for everything that happens. And if it's about you and it's about some inkling of goodness in you or me, then God does not receive the glory. He said through the prophet Isaiah, I will not yield my glory to another. And he says of this salvation that he has provided us in the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. The gospel begins with God. It includes people. And the gospel requires Christ. We say in your outline. God has not only foreknown and predestined and called, but verse 30 says, those he called, he also justified. Now, as we go through this treasure of the gospel mini-series over the next few weeks, we're going to take each of these aspects of the gospel, like justification, and we'll have an entire message devoted just to that. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time then on, on what justification is, other than to say it's the act whereby God declares us to be righteous. And how can he do that? Because the truth is I'm not righteous. So how can God say that I am righteous? We're going to see when we look at justification, it's because he credits to the account of the individual when we come to Christ, the righteousness of Jesus. It's a righteousness that's not our own, but a righteousness from God. That's the gospel. This is a righteousness that you don't have, but Jesus does, and he applies it to you, and he declares you to be righteous even when you're not. But the gospel absolutely requires and is centered on Christ. The gospel begins with God. It includes people. It requires Christ. And lastly, it guarantees eternal life. God foreknew, he predestined, he called, and he justified his children. And then verse 30 says, those he justified, he also glorified. This is looking ahead to the final accomplishment of everything that's been promised. The ultimate transformation of the individual who has come to Christ so that we are fully and completely and truly reflective of the character of Christ. Now I want you to notice something about verse 30. All of these descriptions that they were predestined and called and justified. What tense are those in? Past, present, future. Predestined and called and justified. All past tense, right? And then you look at glorified. And glorified is also past tense. But the first three of those, predestined, called, and justified, have actually already happened in the past. (laughs) So they're in the past tense. But glorified's in the past tense, and it ain't happened yet. You're going to be glorified when you're in heaven. And you'll have a glorified body one day, the Bible teaches. Now, I'm looking at you all, and I'm telling you, you're not glorified. You don't have a glorified body, and neither do I. And yet, it's used past tense as if it's already happened, and the reason is is because in the mind of a sovereign God, it's as good as done. And verse 30 is an unbroken chain. Every last one of the people that he foreknew and predestined and called and justified, they will arrive safely home. They will be glorified. Unbroken chain. That's why Paul, who wrote Romans, he also wrote Philippians, and he says in Philippians, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. 
Now, to whom is all of this written? And I end by by reminding you that the gospel is not just this summary that we have at the beginning of our relationship with God, but the gospel is applicable in all of its aspects to you and me throughout our lives. Because Paul, who wrote the book of Romans, gives this marvelous explanation of the details of the gospel. But guess who he's giving that explanation to? Not to people who haven't come to Jesus. He's given this explanation to people who've already come to Jesus. Back in chapter 1 and verse 7, as he starts out this letter, he says, I'm writing to all in Rome who are loved by God and who are called to be his holy people. Stay with me for two more minutes. So with all of that, I asked you, what's so great about Noah? And what's so great about Abraham and David and the apostles and Paul? What's so great about you? And what's so great about me? I have, there are four sons in my my family, four. There is one son who follows Jesus. That's me. What's so great about me? Nothing. What makes me better than my brothers? Nothing. Nothing but the mercy and the grace of God given to me. That's it. And I tell you this, friends, because the gospel should humble us. We're no better than... The idea that someone would really believe and think and have the whole mind, a basis to think, I'm not going to go to church because those people think they're better than anybody else. Are you kidding? It's the last thing that anyone should think if we truly understand the good news of the gospel. Better off? Oh, to be sure. <laughs> better off. But better? Uh-uh. But for the grace of God, so go we. That's how we have to view ourselves. That's how we have to view other people. And motivated by the glory and grace of God in the gospel. That is what will cause us then to reach out to every man, woman, boy, and girl that God brings into our circle. Because we don't believe there's anyone beyond God's power to save. And we don't believe we're better than anyone that's not yet saved. And he will receive the glory through every piece of that then. I say in your take-home truth, the gospel is good news, both for this life and for the next. And we're going to pray. And as we do, I invite you to thank God for the good news of the gospel and its operation in your life if you have a relationship with God. It's His grace that has done that in you. Thank Him. Humble yourself before Him. But I invite anyone in here who came into this room and you don't know Jesus... You didn't know all the stuff we talked about. Now you know, and God offers this free gift of salvation to you. You have to receive that. So we offered the opportunity to do that with these four things that we mentioned earlier. That you realize that you're a sinner. You recognize that Christ is the one and the only one who can pay the penalty for your sin. Repent. I want to follow you as my Lord. I'm going to go your way, not my way. You receive Jesus Christ into your life. You pray to him when we bow from your, in your own words, from your heart to God, acknowledging that he who calls on the name of the Lord will be rescued. Let's pray. Father, 
Thank you for the gospel. The gospel of God, the good news that's from God. We thank you for the righteousness that is in Jesus. We thank you that it is only in Jesus that we can have any righteousness and have any opportunity to stand before you, holy and righteous God. But Lord, we thank you that it's indeed the most marvelous and unbelievable news. That though we are unrighteous, we can be righteous before you because of Jesus. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would draw some out of the world and to yourself in this sacred moment. Move upon the hearts of those who have heard the general call of the gospel and make it effective in them as only you can do. And Lord, when you do, change them from the inside out to lives and lips that now praise you. It will be you and you alone who receives the glory We will boast in the Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.